Alright all you movie junkies, it is time for the SLS Cast, with your hosts Matt and Tim. And welcome to episode 98 of the SLS cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it is the Memphis episode of the SLS cast because Windows 98 was codenamed Memphis. That's right. Good old Windows 98 came out back in June of 1998, 16 wonderful years ago. And with that little bit of software knowledge, I, of course, am your ever-intrepid host, Matt. And I am Tim. Who would have known that Windows was going on a down, down, downhill slope with Windows 98, and then after that, Windows Millennium, Windows ME, and it just really, I, I think people would be happier if we just stuck with Windows 95 and just didn't upgrade at all. I think oh, those no, people I, have the last laugh. I think that there are people who would say that the pinnacle of Windows was probably Windows XP. Yeah, I, I, I guess so. I mean, Personally, I think Windows 7 is the best Windows since sliced bread. I mean, really? You liked Windows oh, yeah. 7? I love Windows 7. Really? Oh, yeah. When we were working on getting you your laptop and everything, I was trying to figure out a way to get you your laptop and then downgrade it back to Windows 7. Oh. It's always kind of sad whenever you buy a new product, and it's like, you know what? You're better off just downgrading. Depressing technology. It's kind of sad when you think about it. I hear you. How's your week been, sir? Week has been good. A couple weeks ago was the Criterion Collection Flash Sale, where they knock off about, like, 50% off of every single one of their movies, and I decided to drop a hundred bucks and buy five movies to add to my collection, and they were Eraserhead, from which is David Lynch's first big movie, which is one that he made uh, while he was at AFI, the film school here in LA. Eyes Without a Face, a French film, uh, very creepy. Highly recommend it. And then also got The Red Shoes, beautiful movie from the late forties. All That Jazz, the Bob Fosse movie, which is kind of, it's, it's like loosely based upon his life, which is kind of scary because it was kind of like a premonition of what would later on happen to Bob Fosse, not too much longer later. Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, probably one of my all-time favorite Wes Anderson movies. So I couldn't, uh, couldn't pass those five up this time around. So, yay! Take advantage while you can. Awesome. Yeah, I um, really haven't been doing much of anything, and uh, I'm a little on the broke side of broke, so I do not think that I will be partaking in said Criterion Collection sale. Um, For those of you who listen and are thinking of gift ideas for me, well, I guess now's as good a time as any. So... Nothing other than the Criterion Collection was interesting and fun and exciting for you this over, over this last week? Yeah, I mean, like I said, it's going to be very difficult to beat the Seattle drive-up bikini coffee shop. I'm telling you, I believe it. I believe it. Uh, yeah, well, there we go. So I guess with, uh, with that, shall we just go ahead and get right to the nitty-gritty? Yeah, let's do it. All right, here we go, folks. It is the news! 
right, so we had a stunted opening, so let's get started with our stunted news segment. Do you want to go first, or do you want me to go first? Uh, I can go first, why not? All right, <laughs> shake it up a little bit. All right, so both of my news pieces for today, I only have two, believe it or not, only two. Uh, they're both from the thehollywoodreporter.com. The first one here, it's official. Bollywood is done with unauthorized remakes. Ripping off ideas is getting harder and harder. So the Indian film industry is now looking at co-production deals and sanctioned remakes. That is right. Uh, you know, I wish beforehand I had a list of old, like, crazy Bollywood ripoff names. I don't know, Matt, if, if as I'm reading through this, if, if you can... Look up a few of those titles, because some of them are so ridiculous that it's obvious they're trying to rip off American movies. So that's kind of why I thought this was funny, because that's going to... what w- I mean, what was a Bollywood norm is now going away, which is kind of interesting. They're, they're doing something about it. And this is what this article says. The Indian film industry has long been accused of ripping off Hollywood and foreign storylines with unauthorized local remakes. But thanks to increasing corporization and global consolidation of the industry, all that is rapidly changing and paving the way for official remakes. One of the most high-profile releases this year has been Bang Bang. Fox Star Studios' Bollywood takes on the Tom Cruise Cameron Diaz starer night and day. FSS earlier released City Lights, a Hindi remake of the UK's foreign language Oscar entry Metro Manila. The studio also recently announced it was planning a Bollywood version of its hit title, The Fault in Our Stars. Lionsgate and Indomal, India, Indomal, it kind of sounds like a Do you have cramps? Take Indomal. Anyways, Lionsgate and Indomal. India announced a co-production of the Hindi version of the 2011 sports drama Warrior, which starred Tom Hardy and Joel Edgerton. It's not just Hollywood, but also the French who are forging ahead and lining up deals. A first-of-its-kind French remakes market, which was organized at the Mumbai Film Festival, was put together by French government-backed film body Unifrance in La Fabrique Films, headed by a former French embassy official posted in Mumbai, Deborah Benatar. It goes on uh, to say, A new crop of independent Italian producers is also stepping up to the plate. Recently established banner Azure Entertainment, founded by former Reliance executive Sunur Kepertal, or Keterpal, has acquired rights for a dozen foreign titles, three of which are from Galmont. These include action dramas Le Lenoy, which is already shooting as a gang story directed by Tigamanushi Duhulia. Quote, The advantage of developing remakes is that it makes it easier to first pitch it creatively to potential talent, says Kerpatol. Also, Indian audiences are opening up to a wider range of stories, so it's only natural to acquire material that has worked in various markets. End quote. Beyond France, Azur has also picked up rights for titles from Korea, Hong Kong, Spain, sp- God damn it, Hong Kong, Spain, not Spain, Denmark, Argentina, and Panama. 
Korean thriller The Man from Nowhere is in production as Rocky Handsome, starring top Bollywood actor John Abraham and directed by Nishikant Kamat. When it comes to number crunching, remake rights can command prices anywhere between $25,000 and about $160,000, according to Kerpital. Beyond just negotiating for the rights, it's also important to be part of the creative process to see how a film will be adapted by a local producer so that it retains some of its original flair, added De La Porte, which I didn't really talk about De La Porte, so you're probably not going to know who De La Porte is, which is why you should read this article. It's official Bollywood is done with unauthorized remakes from thehollywoodreporter.com. Any comments, concerns, questions, two cents that you would like to give, Matt? <laughs> um, I guess, I think this is kind of like when Hollywood shifted from silent movies to talkies. There will always be as bad as they were, or in some cases even as halfway decent as they were or whatever, there's always going to be uh, some nostalgia for the Bollywood remakes. <clears throat> and I think that um, it was an important step in the evolution of Bollywood, but I think that it's good that they're now trying to actually partner with with the with the proper studios and get better production values and, and kind of just bring things into the 21st century, so to speak. I think that it's good, and I, I think that it will have an an added bonus on our end of being able to promote actors and actresses from India and bring them stateside, so to speak, so that we'll be able to see real talent coming out of there without having to wonder if it's just, you know, crappy Bollywood remakes versus good Indian cinema. So, yeah, I think it's good. I don't think it's a bad thing. Yeah, so I found this list from www.top10s.net slash 10 Bollywood movies that are blatant Hollywood ripoffs. And what's great is one of them is a Bruce Almighty ripoff, and it's it's entitled God Tutsi Great Ho. And uh, I'm mispronouncing that horribly. But uh, yeah, that's what you get. I mean, there's Bruce Almighty... One, they do a rip. They have a whip, a whip off. They have a whip off of when Harry met Sally, which is called Hum Tum. So you got the Parent Trap, Do, Kalian, a Clueless Aisha, which is they call it Aisha. You have Sleeping with the Enemy, which they call Darar. Uh, they have one of my best friend's <laughs> wedding, Primal Fear, What Happens in Vegas, uh, Hitch, even which they just call Partner. And they also have one called Bonnie and... Or based off of Bonnie and Clyde called Bunty Our Babli, which um, the two characters do not look anything like Bonnie and Clyde, but the promotional picture that I'm looking at looks more like a family comedy from the 1950s that would have starred the guy who played the, the reluctant professor. Or the absent-minded professor. I forgot his name. He was also... Yeah, the flubber guy. The original flubber guy from the 50s. I mean, he's... Fred it's McMurray? Like this, what's that? Fred McMurray? Is that him? Maybe. That was the guy who did the original Flubber movie. Yeah, well, this is a Profe picture yeah, where... Absent-minded professor? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, Fred, yeah. Well, this looks like a picture that he would, you know, be a part of because it's this young uh, Indian male-female 
one of the males wearing a jean jacket. So it's very circa, you know, 2001 Mexico City. And they're riding a what what is the the motorbike with the with the with the with the companion seat on the side sidecar? Yeah, sidecar. And it's doing one of those things where they're both standing up and it's it's kind of tilting a little bit, so it's very dramatic. But it's also a very fun movie, so I find it hard to believe this is a accurate remake of Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, I'm not going to watch it, but if any of you guys out there who are listening to this now have seen Bunty Our Babli, do let us know at the SLS Cast. Absolutely, yes. The show at SLScast.com. All right, so my first up is a little, unfortunately a little bit of sad news. Uh, from Variety.com, courtesy of Shelley Weinstein, Elizabeth Pena, co-star of Jacob's Ladder and La Bamba, dies at 55, which is very shocking. I was definitely surprised by this news. Uh, yes, actress Elizabeth Pena, who co-starred in Jacob's Ladder and La Bamba, died October 14th in Los Angeles after suffering from a brief illness, according to her nephew, Latino Review writer Mario Francisco Robles. Uh, she was 55 and had a career that spanned four decades. Born in Elizabeth, New Jersey and raised by Cuban immigrant parents, Pena began performing in New York theater and got her professional start in 1978 with Leon Ichazo's El Super. She went on to appear in films including Rush Hour, Blue Steel, and Batteries Not Included, not in that order. <clears throat> and that was actually the first movie that I ever saw her in, was Batteries Not Included. And also starred in her own primetime series on ABC, I Married Dora. As well, she lent her voice to the Justice League animated series, Animated Dad, and to Disney Pixar's The Incredibles, voicing Mirage. Pena also had a recurring guest role on ABC's Modern Family as Pilar, the mother of Sofia Pagara's uh, Gloria. The actress recently wrapped work on the first season of El Rey Network's Matador, in which she played the title character's mother. Quote, We are deeply saddened by the passing of our friend and colleague, Elizabeth Pena. She was a role model, a truly extraordinary performer, and an inspiration in every sense of the word. Our thoughts are with Elizabeth's family and friends during this difficult time. She will be deeply missed. End quote. That is from El Rey. Pena is survived by her husband, two children, mother, and sister. So I'm curious. I mean, I don't know if she had some severe you know, cancer or something like that. I mean, that's just crazy. But man, 55. That is that is way too soon in today's day and age. Yeah, no kidding. Well, luckily she had herself a... a well, I guess, I mean, uh, for a uh, actress of her, you know, all the, the shows that she's been in, I mean, she is obviously recognized, so... It's good oh, to know that she had a good career. Absolutely. And I would definitely, anybody, it's a good family movie as well. Check out Batteries Not Included. And um, and if you're an adult, check out Jacob's Ladder. It's definitely a nice, freaky horror movie. Or maybe if are. you're five and you accidentally watched that on HBO <laughs> when it first came out, thinking it was a children's show called Jacob's Ladder. <laughs> Oh my God! That totally would be check it amazing. out. Yeah. Okay. All right. What else do you have for us, sir? All right. So again, from the HollywoodReporter.com study. This is a study. Parents and MPAA raiders can be desensitized to sex and violence in film. Yes, I know that the moaning and groaning begin because this is 
I, I mean, kind of stating the obvious for the most part, yet I am for some reason including this as a part of my news. Parents, presumably including the ones the MPA relies on for movie ratings, become desensitized to sex and violence in movies the more they are exposed to such scenes, according to a study set for release on Monday. Uh, oh, and this article came out 1019, so Sunday. Yeah, last Sunday. The study indicates that when parents first see a scene involving graphic sex, their first instinct is that the movie isn't suitable for children under, on average, 17.2 years of age. Yes, it says 7.2 years of age. For a scene with violence, the initial reaction is children under 16.9 years of age shouldn't watch. But as they watched more and more sex and violence on the screen, their opinions changed significantly, down to 13.9 years for violence and 14 for sex, according to the study from the Annenberg Public Policy Center of the University of Pennsylvania. The author studied 1,000 parents of children ages 6 to 17 who watched scenes from several films, 8 Mile, Casino Royale, Collateral, Taken 2, Die Hard, Live Free or Die Hard, The Terminator, and Terminator Salvation. The study is set for publication in the journal Pediatrics, which says of the movies chosen, quote, They include sexual encounters that leave little to the imagination, executions that come by surprise, and battles between humans and robots that end in the graphic death of the robot. End quote. The study explores what it calls ratings creep, whereby movies that might have been rated R a few decades ago are actually less violent than movies that are rated PG-13 today. The phenomenon doesn't apply as much to sex. Quote, People who rate movies for the MPAA, who are themselves parents, could be subject to the same desensitization and thus more likely to be lenient when it comes to evaluating the appropriateness of such content for children, end quote, the author said. An MPAA spokesperson had no comment on the study. Quote, we were surprised to see the transfer of desensitization. In quote, said Dave Romber, associate director of the APPC, if the parents saw movie clips with violence, they became more accepting of the sex scenes and vice versa. Children are affected by what they see and hear. In quote, the upcoming article in Pediatrics says, quote, research supports the connection between a viewing violent media and later aggression in individual children. End quote. The pediatrics article will also suggest that the MPAA conduct quote, interventions to prevent desensitization end quote, among its raiders and also recruit more of them. The MPAA doesn't disclose the identities of most of its raiders, but they say that each are parents of children ages to 15 years old, and that each raider serves no more than seven years. Quote, Parent raiders for the movie industry may become progressively more approving of violence in movies simply because of their job. End quote. The pediatrics article will say. Period. That's it. What do you think, Matt? I, I mean, real quick, it's funny because, like, the, to me this was, like, an obvious thing, but... I, I know you can't really say that for sure people will, will become desensitized, but then I think about myself, and 
you can even look at horror movies, and, you, and we can even, uh, in, in a way, kind of relate this to uh, the Psycho movies, or you know, a number of movies that came out like in the seventies, eighties, even in the fifties, where at that time those movies were, you know, were scary, were absolutely frightening, and that's why they had to come up with new ways to scare people because people were just getting used to that, so they needed to do something else, and they, you know, it progresses, it goes on and on and on, and then you got the crazy John Carpenter, you know, you know, all these slasher flicks your Michael Myers, your Jasons, and, you know, it kind of moved on from there. You know, in the 2000s, we end up having, like, the Saul movies, and you have the Paranormal Activity movies, and all that to where I, I can I can understand, I can see how it would be difficult to gauge how or who will become desensitized throughout the course of watching movies, you know, throughout the years, but then again, I, I I don't know. Like nobody, I mean, this is something that I don't think you can regulate at all. I mean, you cannot regulate this. I mean, there's really nothing you can do. And you know, this even goes back to well, then what's the point of a rating system? I mean, this even adds more proof to there not being a rating system because what's the point of relying on these people if you know they are going to be desensitized to violence and sex and all that jazz? Well, I would say I would say this. We've definitely, I mean, desensitized, oh my gosh, it's catching, Tim. I know, it's a hard one. Stop it. It's a difficult one. Desensitization (laughs) is going to occur no matter what. Because as things progress, they become blasé. It's just a matter of fact. Think, I mean, think about the very first time you ever had sex. The very first time you ever had sex, fuck sex, forget sex. The very first time you discovered the joys of masturbation. Oh my. And then you're like, holy shit, I can do this to myself? Wow. And so you're jerking off every 10 seconds. Uh, Ladies probably rubbing one out. Whatever. (laughs) Note to self, make sure grandmother does not listen to episode 98. (laughs) Of the SLS and then, cast. And of course, then you actually do discover sex. And like the Kid Rock song says, every single day, fucking like rabbits. Of course, you're going to do that. But as you get older, is sex fun? Is sex nice? Do you still want to do it? Sure. But do you have that same level of passion for it? Everything? Nah, you become a little bit more selective. You know, ah, I can pass on it tonight, whatever. It's the exact same thing. As you experience something <laughs> over and over again, it simply becomes... Passe. So it kind of becomes like a buffet. Sure, but if you think about it, we've gone from, in less than 100 years, in less than 100 years, we have gone from people fainting at the sight of the film Dracula, and... People not being able to take showers because of Psycho? Well, no, not even that, Uh, but, uh, oh, good lord, Lon Chaney, right? He did Frankenstein first? Boris Karloff. Boris Karloff, thank you. Yeah, Lon Boris Chaney Karloff. did Phantom of the Opera. Yeah, and Fan- there you go, Phantom of the Opera and the Mummy stuff. Okay. Um, well, no, Boris Karloff did Mummy stuff. Anyway, whatever. Boris Karloff not even being able to uncover himself during the filming of Frankenstein because the movie makeup was so horrific to not getting anybody's attention unless you're smashing a baby's head under a fucking... Uh, an accelerated pedal. So, yeah, I'd pretty much say that, you know, you can become desensitized to stuff. 
So perhaps the answer would be shortening the period with which screeners are allowed to screen and perhaps maybe starting said new screeners with a primer, like a one-day primer where they watch, for instance, where they watch Dracula and then fast forward uh, 40 years, 30 years or so, and they watch Psycho and then fast forward 15 years and they can watch a couple of uh, Midnight Cowboy and they can watch, um, you know, I don't know, pick a good horror flick from that area so that they can actually see examples of how dramas um, progressed. They can see how violence has progressed and then stick them in the movies and let them watch movies for a shorter amount of time. I think that would probably help because then they're understanding how the de- how that desensitization works and then they're not in there so long so that they themselves won't be desensitized. I don't know. I guess I'm not here to solve the world's problems. <laughs> yes, you are. Why else would we be doing this? Ah, <laughs> uh, the lofty goals. So, yeah. So, that, those, that, there you go. That's my two cents, as it were. Yeah. Well, people just don't have time to do things right, apparently. I would have to agree with you there. So, my last piece of news comes from Discovery.com. Actually, Discovery News. So, news.discovery.com, courtesy of Laura Gagel from Live Science. Giant Sphinx from Ten Commandments film unearthed. And no, I'm not talking about the one that uh, Charlton Heston, let my people go. No, not that one. No, 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 no. We're talking about hidden for more than 90 years beneath the rolling sand dunes of Guadalupe, California, an enormous plaster sphinx from the 1923 blockbuster movie The Ten Commandments has been rediscovered and is now above ground. The public will be able to see the Sphinx on display as early as next year once it has been reconstructed, a necessity since it became weather-beaten during its stint beneath the sand, said Doug Jensen, the executive director of the Guadalupe Nipomo Dunes Center, who oversaw the recent excavation. The roughly 15-foot-tall, that's 4.6 meters for all you international folks, Sphinx is one of 21 that lined the path to Pharaoh's city in the 1923 silent hit directed by Cecil B. DeMille. He later remade the film with Charlton Heston as Moses in 1956. And this is one of the... It was literally at the time, it was like the largest set ever made. Um, They definitely... This would be like James Cameron coming in and looking at this budget and going, you know, I don't think we should do this. I mean, that's how big <laughs> this was back then. Yeah, I personally am very jealous. Uh, I would, as first of all, as a history buff, and I know you are as well because you're a history minor. I just would, I mean, this would just be awesome just to go see just for the sake of seeing it. But on top of which, because we're both complete movie crazed idiots, just how fucking amazing will this be? I mean, and then of course our friends at uh, Midnight Movie Nights there. I mean, um, they've got there. One of them is departing to move, so now all of y'all are gonna get to see this shit, and I'm gonna be stuck out here in Texas all by myself with the good Tex-Mex country cooking. 
Well, there is that. I don't know. I suppose. The little things in life that make a man happy. <laughs> Indeed. So, anyways, yeah. So that concludes the news for me, and I guess the news overall, yeah? Uh, pretty much, but you know that uh, in other big movie artifact news, uh, just to mention real quick, you know, as a gift, Marvel gave Robert Downey Jr. the big A that was on the side of Stark Tower. Like, Oh, they did? <laughs> yeah, like uh, an 18-wheeler rolled up in front of his office, and he went down to see what the hell was going on, and it was a giant A. And so it's going to be displayed prominently. Isn't that A? I'm sorry, but isn't that A kind of surrounded by a circle? No. No? You're thinking okay. of the Avengers A. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking of the Avengers yeah, A. Yeah, no, no, this was uh, Maybe the they were Stark. trying to tell him he was an A-hole. So. Oh. <laughs> anyway. That's, uh. that's cool, though. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, since we have concluded the news, I guess it is now time for... Three Square. Yeah, so this week's Three Squared is our picks for the worst villains. Now, um, we kind of changed the rules on y'all because that's what we like to do, right? What's, what the fuck is the point of consistency? Um, I had said that we were picking, these were purely subjective picks, could be bad acting, or we just didn't like them, or they were too horrific, or whatever. Um, but, Tim rather astutely realized that sometimes we hurt from material, and maybe we might want to come back and visit this and not have pigeonholed ourselves to where we could never come back. So we, what we decided was we are going to just take our picks for the Villains we feel were like the worst acted. These were the worst performances. The actors were just terrible. Yeah, so I'm going to go ahead and go first. And uh, yeah, first up for me, in, in I think, yeah, I'm going to definitely do this in absolute worst to not terrible, but still pretty fucking bad to I just didn't like them the way they acted it. Okay, so we're going to start with 2004's Catwoman, uh, a movie that is arguably just bad all the way around. Um, but yeah, I think Sharon Stone uh, playing the role of Laurel Madonna Shimpkins Hedare. Yeah, that, that should just speak volumes right there. A name like that, how do you expect this character to be any good, much less acted by Sharon Stone, who... I'm sorry, she's just... She, yeah, I've not ever seen her in anything where she acted well that I can recall. So yeah, she's just completely over the top and not even in a good way. Um, combined with terrible writing, only makes the performance worse. Just bad. If you've never seen this movie, well, good on you. <laughs> you have done something right in your life. Uh, let's see, next up for me is uh, 2003's Daredevil. Now, there are a lot of people who give this movie a lot of shit. Personally, I'm sorry. I, you know, Maybe I'm the only one who liked it. I actually liked Daredevil. Now, is it my favorite superhero movie? No, it's not. But is it a decent superhero movie? Absolutely. I think it was pretty well acted. Pretty, very decent special effects. Um... And a, and a fun story, especially for something when they were still trying to perfect that formula of origin story versus trying to set up and move on. And they were trying to balance quite a few big names for the time in 
this you know plethora of characters that they're dumping into the film. That being said, we do have a bad guy by the name of Bullseye, played by Colin Farrell. And it was, I mean, come on. I understand that, you know, again, bad guys are supposed to be over the top. It's a comic book movie. But this, again, wasn't even over the top in a good way. It was just, it was, it was as if someone tried to take a middle schooler, slap him with a thick Irish accent, and make him play Robert De Niro's role in Taxi Driver. You can picture in your mind the ensuing train wreck that's going to happen. And that's exactly what happened with this particular character. It was just very poor. I'm sorry. And I like Colin Farrell. He's not, he's a, you know, seems to be a pretty okay guy overall. uh, From reports that you see, personal life or what have you, or lack thereof, which is usually a good indicator. Um, He's had some pretty decent performances and stuff like that. I personally thought he did a good job in the Total Recall uh, remake, for example. But in this particular movie, I'm sorry, he just fell completely on his face and the character was terrible and he didn't do anything to help himself, that character, or this movie. Last but not least for me, going down to the classics, baby. From 1959, the original iteration of House on Haunted Hill. Now, this is an American horror film. It's directed by William Castle and stars Vincent Price, along with uh, Carolyn Craig, Alicia Cook, uh, Richard Long, Julie Mitchum, Alan Marshall, and Carol Omar. Now, you, if you are not a student of film or a fan of 50s uh movie making or even horror you probably won't recognize anyone beyond Vincent Price however this was a very well put together horror film and is a very good example of how movie making was about suspense and the thrill that you could do with the effects of the time that being said we have a bad guy in this movie actually you have technically you have a pair of bad guys but it's really driven by the evil femme fatale um, who is played by, her name is uh, Annabelle, and it, she is played by Carol Omar. Now, Carol Omar didn't have quite a distinguished career, but and this is actually listed as one of her highlights in, in performances um, in terms of said career. But I really felt that she was just, the acting in this movie for her, for specifically on her, it just was completely, I don't want to say laughable, because it wasn't laughably bad, but you could tell there was a different caliber of acting going around, going on around her, and it was more like she was just kind of a caricature of the femme fatale, the evil lady who's trying to mastermind this whole thing, versus someone who is deliberate and who is that insidious and willing to put all these people through everything that she's trying to put them through for her own evil game. I just, it just didn't work for me. I felt that she was just the weakest link in this chain. Outside of that, the movie is still fantastic. And even though I don't like her acting, the movie is still good. So, those are my three picks 2004's Catwoman featuring Sharon Stone as Laurel Madonna Shimkins Hader, uh, 2003's Daredevil featuring Colin Farrell as Bullseye, and 1959's House on Haunted Hill featuring Carol Omart as the evil Annabelle. So, there you go. 
What do you got for us there, Tim? If it means anything, uh, back when I remember the movie came out and uh, Catwoman came out and looking at, I, I don't know if it was IMDb or I, I don't know what, but up until I actually finally saw the movie, I thought Sharon Stone's last name was Headcare, not Hedare. <laughs> I thought I saw a C and it was like Lady Yada 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 Headcare. Wow, <laughs> Warner Brothers, you are... <laughs> You are really scraping the barrel trying to get the lady viewers to watch this. That's awesome. But, but yes. Okay, so I'm going to start off with, at the time it was a childhood favorite back in 1995. I was six, seven years old. And this was a movie that everybody from my grade went to go see. Because back in the early 90s, the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers were the shit. Believe it or not. And it's funny because I caught a power, like a, a, a tidbit of a Power Rangers episode uh, whenever I was visiting family recently. And the special effects have not gotten any better since 1993. It's been 21 years and everything looks cheap. Everything is made out of cardboard. I don't know. But, uh, so Mighty Morphin Power Rangers movie came out in 1995, and it brings the whole gang together to defeat the evil Ivan Ooze, portrayed by the fellow Brit Paul Freeman, uh, who's actually a pretty decent actor, and why do they get him to play Ivan Ooze? I really don't know. Um, and the reason why I'm hating on Ivan Ooze right now, I don't really want to say I'm hating on him, because this was a childhood favorite that I do not like now. I mean, the movie is a bad movie, but honestly, the the only... I mean, if I were to sit down and make the conscious decision to watch this movie, it would be because of Paul Freeman's Ivan Ooze. But then again, that does not mean his villain is a good villain. In fact, it is a bad villain. It is definitely your stereotypical... If you were to say, hey, Matt, go play a bad guy. Go play a villain. Or you just go to... Or better yet, if you go to a, a high school theater and say... Hey, 15-year-old, go play a go play a bad guy. And I think this is kind of like how they would portray this character. You know, it's just like a stereotypical way to play a character. His character, Ivan Ooze, was kind of part Scooby-Doo character and part 60s Bond villain. I mean, I think it was just his way of saying, you know, I am Ivan Ooze. You know, it's not just like, I am Ivan Ooze. No, it is like, I am Ivan Ooze. Ooze. You know, you can't just say, I am Ivan Ooze. No, because of the name is so stupid, you really have to, like, say the ooze. And if you haven't seen the movie, uh, just think of, say, Dr. No, or even Dr. I better get Dr. Evil saying, I am Dr. Evil. And that's pretty much what you'll get with Ivan Ooze here. Next up for me is kind of a 1-3 punch with uh, my second choice here. And this is... I God, I, I, I couldn't help myself. Every villain from the Expandables trilogy. The Expendables trilogy. Not the Expandables. Because I don't think none of them are really getting fat to really expand anything. From Expendables 1, you have Eric Roberts portraying James Monroe. Jean-Claude Van Damme portraying villain and mel gibson from expendables 3 portraying stone banks and what i think of a good villain 
is not necessarily how like how powerful they are over the over the protagonist how much of an upper hand they have no the, it's not i mean to me it's the villain is uh, doesn't have to be like this big domineering uh presence in the film it's okay to be a smaller character you know say you know kevin spacey in 7 that is a fantastic villain, but you know what? He's only in the movie for the last 20 minutes, 20, 25 minutes or so, and yet his presence is strong, and he is evil. And that's what I kind of look for in a, in a good villain, one that leaves their mark, regardless of the size of the character, regardless of the power of their character. They have to leave their mark. You know, it's something that has to resonate within me, Uh day out uh, not only hours or days but even years later on like you think about the movie and, and say you know that was that movie that villain made an impression on me and i cannot say that with any of these uh, of these guys and i was sitting down trying to trying to figure out something to write from every single one of them uh but i i've got nothing really i mean to be honest Mel Gibson shouldn't be on this list because I love Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson is a great actor. He's a very, very reliable actor, but the material was not good enough for him. It was just the same old stuff that went on with all the other bad guys. Same old thing. Oh, hey, yada, yada, yada. Remember when we were good buddies? And it's all about nostalgia for them and reminiscing on the good old days. That that is pretty much what the Expendables franchise to me is is period. Uh, so yeah, that was Eric Roberts from the first one, Jean Claude Van Damme for the second one, and Mel Gibson from the third Expendables. And then finally, my last uh, pick for the worst movie villain would be uh, this. I mean, I wrote down Medusa and Dave Dragon from Three Ninjas at High Noon, High Noon at Mega Mountain from 1998. Uh, which was Lonnie Anderson and Hulk Hogan. But mainly to me, Hulk Hogan will always be Hulk Hogan. Like, Arnold Schwarzenegger is Arnold Schwarzenegger. But Lonnie Anderson, playing this Medusa chick, and Three Ninjas, High Noon at Mega Mountain, was ridiculous, because this is a kid show. This isn't necessarily a teenager show. This is a kid show. I was 9 or 10 when this came out. I was even probably too old, you know, to watch this movie. But I grew up watching Three Ninjas. And it, it was bad. Okay, so Lonnie Anderson, I mean, if you don't know the movie, which I would expect most of you will not know this movie. Uh, these people take over a, a theme park, which is based, actually it was Six Flags Magic Mountain out here in uh, Santa Clarita. And so these people take over the theme park, and who was there to fight them, to stop them and fight them from doing whatever the hell it was they were doing? But the three ninjas themselves, and they're going to kick ass, take no names, and even possibly their lunch money. I don't know. But Lonnie Anderson as Medusa, she, to me, was like a porn star. She was wearing black leather. She has the poofy hair that dyed before this movie came out. This was 98, but she looked like Farrah Fawcett from the late 70s. Early, actually, Farrah Fawcett throughout the 70s and 80s. Poofy blonde hair, eyeliner, lip liner, and she talked like she was about to reach down somebody's pants at any moment and take advantage of them because 
boys. I am Medusa. It was just, it's just stupid shit like that. And I really have nothing else to say. It, it was it was just bad. I, and again, I feel kind of silly talking about how bad a character is from Three Ninjas, High Noon at Mega Mountain, which I believe is like the fourth Three Ninjas movie that was direct to, I don't know, I don't, I don't even think it even was at the movie theater. I would be surprised that people even pay to go see that movie. It was just annoying to me back in the day, and I have fond memories uh, being awfully disappointed from, you know, after watching that movie. So again, my three, Medusa from portray or uh, Lonnie Anderson's Medusa from Three Ninjas High Noon at Megan Mountain, uh, James Monroe's Eric Roberts, Jean-Glaude Van Damme's Villain, and kind of sort of Mel Gibson's Stone Banks from every single Expendables movie. And then my first pick was Paul Freeman's portrayal of Ivan Ooze in Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, the movie from 1995. And those folks are my... Worst movie villains. Okie dokie. All right. So next week we're going to be doing a special Halloween uh, discussion with Matt and Tim on the ScreenCrush.com article, The Difference Between a Great Horror Movie and a Great Halloween Movie, courtesy of Jacob Hall. And that, folks, concludes 3 Squared and brings us to... The Movie... All right, folks, so the movies this week were Fury, ABCs of Death 2, and the Psycho Trilogy for our horror movies for this week. I mean, technically, ABCs of Death 2 is a horror movie as well, but I mean, we, you know, just trying to keep with the theme. So, at some point, the horror music's going to start. I don't know if it's going to start on ABCs or Psycho Trilogy. Psycho Trilogy. But just so you're prepared. Oh, there we go. Psycho Trilogy. (laughs) There There it is. All right. Courtesy of the engineer himself. All right. So, I guess let's go ahead and start off with Fury. 2014 American war film. Directed by David Ayer. Stars Brad Pitt. Porn Stash LaBeouf. Logan Lerman. Michael Pena. John Bernthal. Jason Isaacs. And Scott Eastwood. Alright, so this is about a, uh, basically a tank team, I guess you could say they're from the 2nd Armored Division. Um, they are definitely battle-hardened. And that is a tank team, not a taint team. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Well, you know, when Pornstache LaBeouf is involved, I suppose it's good to clarify. Um... <laughs> The uh, show title. <laughs> nice. All right, so they are then saddled with a newbie, and of course, everyone you know has to relearn the camaraderie with the newbie and uh, trying to overcome insurmountable odds and still maintain humanity, but still have to kick ass and take names. For me, this movie is a World War II version of The Judge. Very well acted, very well directed, good writing, doesn't really bring anything new. Um, It's a good movie, and honestly, even I didn't feel it was too long or anything. And it does, it runs, uh, including the previews, it's going to run you at least two and a half hours, so be sure to pee beforehand. Um, 
and maybe get a small drink. So that being said, I don't really have anything to add to it. Uh, it's a good movie. Nothing spectacular because it doesn't bring anything to this that you haven't seen, and it doesn't tell it in, a, or it doesn't tell this story in a really unique way. But again, good acting, good writing, great directing. Three point seven five. So World War Two movies to me, it seems like it doesn't matter if it's a big budget uh, World War Two movie or a smaller, more independent World War Two movies. And believe it or not, there are quite a few independent World War Two movies, and. Uh, to me, it seems like a lot of them try to be something bigger than it really than what it really needs to be. People shoot for the spectacle. I mean, not every war movie has to be like Saving Private Ryan, for example, or Black Hawk Down. Also, uh, is another really good war battle esque type of movie. And I think what I one of the uh, redeeming not redeeming, but one of the great qualities of Fury is and also David Ayer's direction is that the movie is focused on a small group of men four guys I mean those are your main characters these four guys yes Brad Pitt is predominantly is probably on the screen for most of the movie but it's usually not just him you know there's usually one or all you know three of them all four of them are together at a single time and so I like that a lot I liked how involved the characters were and integral each character was for to the story itself. I mean, it was a it was definitely a character film uh, more so than it was a story film. I mean, this movie would have been nothing without the characters as well as even the the performances. Even Shia LaBeouf did a great job. I mean, he is actually a good actor despite I mean, I do not care too much for the way, uh, like, how he goes about preparing for a role. But, you know, it, it, I guess it works for him, maybe? I, I don't know. But it's good. You know, he's really, really good. You actually feel for his character. He played a good character. I mean, these are all, I mean, maybe other than one, they're pretty, they're good guys, but with horrible faults, and you, you start to realize that, well, the, the war, the war is what's bringing the badness, you know, the, the fury, the fury comes from what's drawing within due to the war that is going on around them, and also the, the confined space that they are all in, you know, within a tank. And uh, it's crazy, I mean, there's, cra there's great camaraderie between these guys, and there's ever-mounting sadness when one of them dies. Uh, I'm not really talking about the characters, but just like, you know, these tank guys in general. Uh, because, again, you're, you're, you spend so much time together huddled up in such a small and cramped space. It's your home. I give Fury 3.75 stars. It's 2 hours, 15, 2 hours and 20 minutes, uh, 20 minute movie. I easily could have watched this movie for another 25, 30 minutes. It was a good movie. It's enjoyable. David Ayer directed one of our favorite movies of last year, the Jake Gyllenhaal, Michael Pena movie, End of Watch, uh, which the last 20, 30 minutes of End of Watch is, you know, pretty intense. And that's kind of how it is with this movie. And so it's fun to watch uh, this one after seeing End of Watch because you can tell that David Ayer is a really good filmmaker. You know, he knows how to make personal stories where it's, I mean, when you watch it, the movie feels bigger, but really he's focusing on these characters, not the spectacle, not the not the events that are happening everywhere else or all around them, 
but specifically on them. And that is a difficult thing to pull off successfully. He does it for the most part. You know, despite there being music throughout the entire movie, uh, which can be a little bit distracting because it's kind of like someone telling you how to feel, you know, someone telling you how to react. That's kind of how music can be, depending on how it is used, uh, how, how it's used for the scoring of, of a film. 3.75 stars out of 5 as well. All right, right on. So moving along, then, we've got ABCs of Death 2, a 2014 American anthology horror comedy film. And it's got 26 different segments. Uh, they're all shorts. Total length of the film is just a tad over two hours. And um, this is... I, I didn't see the first one on the advice of Tim before watching this one. But I gotta say, not having watched the first one, which apparently didn't, wasn't received very well, this one apparently has been received uh, better than, it, than the first one. And I would have to say I could probably see why. I would... I would think though that while this movie overall is really interesting and fun overall i think that they probably could have done this they still probably could have called it abc's of death or something and maybe not had to have 26 segments i think they could probably have gotten away with 20 of them uh for example uh while h is for head games is really really good i thought it was very creative very inventive m for masticate m is for masticate was really stupid um then you turn around and you get p is for p p, -p, -p scary or something which again brilliant and uh then you come up and you get things like r is for roulette uh, again eh. now there's definitely, obviously, if I only didn't like six of them, really, and 20 of them I thought were fun and inventive overall, it's worth watching. I, I, I guess I gotta give this one four stars. I really liked it overall. It was fun, it was inventive, and uh, I figure, you know, if 20 of them are good and six are bad, and the six don't even run all together, so you have time to recover. Um, the post credit scene is hilarious, by the way, so please stick around for that. And... Yeah, that's all I gotta say. It's fun, it's inventive, and four stars. Wow, I'm I'm actually surprised by that. Uh, I didn't care for the movie as much as Matt. I, I don't I don't see this movie as an anthology film, and I think if you get past the fact that it's not really an anthology film, you might think of say like Trick or Treat or Creep Show or. Uh, some of the many anthology films that we talked about last year during Halloween time. But if you think of this movie not as an anthology film, but as, say, a fun project, then there is definitely intrigue there. There are some very interesting things. Uh, I, but I felt that most of them I f could have been, should have been longer for it to have the impact that I think that they wanted. Like, like very few of them... I actually felt fulfilled with what they had given me story-wise and character development, all that. Because it's very hard to make a short film, regardless of the genre, within a five to six minute time frame. People try to make uh, one-sentence horror stories, and even that is virtually impossible. Only a few of them can actually deliver a one-sentence 
horror story that will send what people say shivers down your spine. And with this movie, there are a couple, and Matt mentioned a number of them that uh, I thoroughly enjoyed, that I thought were really good, that I I was satisfied and would not, would it, I mean, I would have loved to have watched more of it, if, even if it could have been like a, a feature-length movie for some reason, or even, you know, like 30 minutes or a more of a long-form short film. And I think this movie would have been better if it was only four to five stories. So, ABCs of Death Part 1 would have been... A through D, and ABCs of Death 2 would have been, you know, E through whatever, and then on and on and on until you got to the very last one, and there you go, it's the completion of the anthology. Therefore, if you have filmmakers making these movies, they have time to come up with a good idea. They have time for it to be fully formed and, and functioning within... Uh, within 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 this whole concept, you know, this whole idea is that I'm not saying that all these have to fit together, say, like VHS. But, you know, I, I think that a lot of these people were either rushed or maybe caught off guard or really weren't too sure what to do. So they just kind of put something together and just stuck with it, which that's great for them. But I just don't think it really worked as much as it should have, as as many times as it should have. Uh, so I give this one 2.75. Uh, I thought it was, I mean, it, w- it wasn't bad. It was interesting. And like I said, if you get past the idea or the fact that it's not like your run-of-the-mill anthology film, but it is like a project. It is kind of like a, you know, say if there was a contest out there and everybody who, sub- who, who took part in the contest, this short film contest, you took all the submissions and you made a movie out of it. You know, it, it could have been, I mean, but then again, if they were more like professional filmmakers and not like, you know, completely amateur, you know, obviously. But again, with that, there's going to be hits or misses, obviously. So it just, it just depends. Uh, so again, 2.75 out of 5 for me. But yes, I am quite surprised that uh, this was a four-star movie for you, which is good. Well, I guess you'll just find I'm full of surprises. All right, so now we come to the horror cast portion of our movies and this week we are doing the psycho trilogy uh psycho one psycho two and psycho three here we have a quiet little motel when in fact it has now become known as the scene of the crime you have a vacancy oh we have 12 vacancies you know this is the first place it looks like it's hiding from the world I think that we're all in our private traps, clamped in them. And none of us can ever get out. Is anyone at home? Oh, that uh, that must be my mother.
harm a fly. Um, these were all the ones that were released in theaters. There was a Psycho 4, which was made for TV and is technically a prequel. So we're not considering that part of the franchise, so to speak. Yeah, so starting off with the top, uh, Psycho, 1960 American horror thriller film. It's directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Stars Anthony Perkins, Vera Miles, John Gavin, and Janet Lee. This is... Truly, I think you would, I think most people would say the quintessential thriller, um, the Citizen Kane of slashers. Um, yeah, so this is just an exquisitely directed film, beautifully paced, great film all the way around. We are, of course, following the wonderful story of Norman Bates and the Bates Hotel and the goings-on that occurs there as people begin to disappear. Um, you know, I, I guess by this time, 54 years later, you might have heard of it or should have already seen it, so spoilers abound, I suppose. <laughs> but this movie for me... And I'm going to just go ahead and say spoilers are bound probably throughout Psycho 2 and 3 as well. So go see these movies if you're at all interested, especially Psycho, and then come back and listen. Please, 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 if you have not seen it, please stop now. Go watch Psycho. At least just Psycho, even if not the other two. And then come back and listen. When I first saw this movie, I was about 12 years old. I want to say I was, I was 11 or 12 when I first saw this movie. It was 88, 89. And I was watching American movie classics back when it was actually American movie classics and not Walking Dead and Ad and Mad Men. Um, the format of Turner classic movies, that's what American movie classics used to be. That's what I was watching. And so I got to actually see the, the actual press screener of the movie. And... It was my very first experience seeing something like that as well. So it had a little 13-minute intro to the film. And it's Alfred Hitchcock wandering through the set, showing off little things about it and why this movie is going to be so amazing and why you need to be patient and bear with things that you might see. And, of course, in his, def in his deadpan, almost like he was introducing a an episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. And at the end of it, he tells people, he tells the people in the audience, please, you can like this movie, you cannot like this movie, but please do not give away the ending. And they didn't. The press did not give away the ending. So, you know, kudos to the world at that time. So then I'm all set up and primed for this movie. And then I watched this movie and I was legitimately creeped the fuck out when I watched this movie. I was like, oh my God. And my mind was absolutely blown when I got, when, when you get the big reveal at the end. And I was like, are you, holy shit. So naturally I was hooked on not just psycho and horror for that and thrillers for that matter, but all things Hitchcock by that point. So you could safely say that this movie for me is five stars. It has not changed. I recognize that there are probably, that there are, uh, legitimate story issues that can be had in the third act. But for me, I grew up with this movie 
and have loved this movie and while I think that there could be things that you could say against it it's still like Mary Poppins of horror practically perfect in every way I love this movie a lot five stars Tim what do you got sir oh man I couldn't disagree more zero star movie And that's the end of the SLS cast. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I am totally kidding. I, I, can't, I can't really say anything else. Well, I mean, I can't say uh, more than what Matt said or add on to what Matt said. But, I mean, he, he points out some uh, uh, exactly how I feel for the most part. I grew up with this movie, loving this movie, and it's hard not to love this movie. Yes, I mean, watching it, especially watching it with people that have never seen it before, you start noticing issues which, I mean, to me, this is a five-star movie, but for, uh, I don't know, for a good two hours, I was debating whether to bump it down to a 4.75, because the ending of it gets re- too explainy, you know, like the whole uh, psychiatrist monologue that seems to go on for like 15 minutes. I really didn't notice it before, but no, watching it again, watching it with uh, people who have not seen it, newbies, the psycho virgins... I started noticing these issues, but it was at the very end. So I, you know, fuck it. I'm not going to let it take a notch down from from the love factor of this movie, which that makes no sense at all. And so I'm going to stick with five. I mean, you cannot beat Anthony Perkins' portrayal of Norman Bates. I mean, he is absolutely fabulous in his portrayal of crazy. He is a Looney Tune. I mean, it, it's it's amazing that... Uh, how much they were able to get away with also for this movie with the idea that uh, Janet Lee that she was nude during the shower scene I mean there's some great behind the scenes story uh, stories from this film god I mean the psycho legacy is a DVD it's a documentary that came out a couple years ago which unfortunately I haven't seen most of it I've seen a big chunk of it over at uh, somebody's house they were playing it and it's definitely worth watching I mean especially if you have no idea if you know nothing of the history of the psycho films how it was made the production of it how secret the film was kept the production process of of the, of the it was kept under a black veil so nobody from the outside knew what psycho was uh it is it's just fascinating you know again everything from the trick shots of to make you think you see the actress nude in the shower but really you know he had to enlist some uh fantastic costumists costume uh madams or matrons or costume women i forget how they what they call the lady costume heads back in the day costume maidens costume maids no it wouldn't be costume maids anyways it's just fascinating from that to using chocolate syrup for the blood to give the effect of blood yeah i was gonna i was definitely gonna throw that in there good old hershey's syrup yeah, exactly, because it's black and white, you know, so trick shots and just how uh, how he shot the shower scene because they, he didn't shoot it in a room. He built like this box that the box can be taken apart like a Rubik's Cube so that he can put a camera, you know, and, and make, you know, shoot in all these great angles, you know, the Hitchcockian angles that a lot of people like to call it. And it's just great. There's just so many history there that we can easily, maybe one SLS cast in the future, we can just talk to people, maybe interview people, and reminisce on the making of Psycho, the five-star 
horror movie from 1960. Yay. Cool. Oh, and I got to throw in there, especially with the whole shower scene. All of those cut angles um, that you see, and again, with that whole Rubik's Cube box thing, it's amazing because with all of the violence that is suggested, you never actually see her get stabbed. So you have that. I mean, you're watching someone be butchered, and never once do you see a blade touch the skin. So that's really cool. And then the other thing of that is you always get the whole, everybody always does the whole thing, right? Because, and that's the, you know, if you, pardon me, if you ever listen, take a moment and just listen to the music of Psycho, it is entirely string music. There is no other music but string instruments. And that's something, just yet another layer of a fantastic movie. All right. So, gosh, do we have to talk about the others now? That sucks. Yes, I I actually like Psycho 2. Okay. Quite, quite a bit. I have a petition here signed by 743 people against Norman Bates' release. Madam, please sit down. This matter is being represented by the district attorney. Norman was not convicted of murder. He was found not guilty by reason of insanity. Don't you realize they're going to release a homicidal I'm maniac? I'm you to sit down, Mrs. Loomis. It's all too obvious. Our courts protect the criminals, not their victims. Norman Bates is judged, restored to sanity, and is ordered released forthwith. It's 22 years later, and Norman Bates is coming home. I own a motel not too far from here, and you'd be welcome to spend the night in one of the empty rooms if you'd like. Good night, Mary. And he's back in business. Who is this? My mother is dead. I'm telling you, there was a note on that wheel for my dead mother. Norman, it couldn't be your mother. It had to be someone else. But trust her. She would never do anything to hurt me. No. She'll kill you. I know she will. No, I... I won't do that. You can't make me... kill her. 22 years later, Norman Bates is home. Psycho 2. It's starting again. Nineteen eighty-three, directed by Richard Franklin, uh, stars Anthony Perkins, Vera Miles, Robert uh, Logia, Logia, I can't Logia, I think, and then Meg Tilly. Now, this movie picks up where the where the first movie left off, in as much as we are now getting to Norman post psychological treatment and i don't know if anyone has ever seen the movie uh d snyder's strange land but 
that movie is basically a microcosm of this. It's actually a more or less a microcosm of the entire trilogy. Which, now that I think about it, I actually have a lot more respect for D. Snyder right now. Holy crap, that just like blew my mind. Anyway, um, so we have this whole... We have him coming home and trying to put the pieces of his life back together. And he's trying to move on. He's actually trying to find a little bit of himself and create a life for himself. But this is, of course, in the midst of a town where he's killed seven people. And people were related to people. And it's a small town and there are some people out there who just don't like him. Now, we also get to see a little bit more into the history of the Bates family. Which then culminates in a whole new series of murders and Mommy Dearest coming home to roost. Sorry, wrong movie. Mother coming home to roost. So, this one is not a terrible movie. I, I must say it is not a terrible movie. I do, however, think that I, I, and I also, I, let me, let me also preface this by saying, I must applaud them. This is kind of like someone trying, this would be almost like, um, oh, for crying out loud, why is this happening to me now? Um, to kill a mockingbird. Uh, Harper Lee. This would be like Harper Lee trying to make To Kill a Mockingbird 2. Alright, you're, you are, Coming on something, you're coming on the heels of something that is constantly considered to be great, a masterpiece, you know, nearly perfect, flawless, people love it, and you're actually trying to make a sequel. So I applaud them for that. That being said, I really think they just tried too hard. And while they set up everything, the, the actual setup for this is very, very well done. The payoff for all of the thrills that they are setting you up for really just kind of feels rushed. Where Tim and I were talking about how there were some story issues in the last third of the film of Psycho and the drawn out explanations by the psychiatrist, which I think could be written off to the fact that people just didn't know that these kinds of things really existed back then for the most part. And maybe that's why that they drew that out. Here, I think they tried to make up for it by having too much stuff happening all at the same time, just to kind of figure out a way to give you another bit of a twist ending. Um, I just don't, I think that the, the, this movie fails to find that balance where you can forgive it in Psycho. I think you were expecting Psycho 2 to have learned, especially with 22 years of movie making progress there would have been a better way to strike that balance. So, all things considered, 3.75. Just short of really liking it, but I do like this movie, and it is a fair sequel to something that you would think, who the hell would try and come up with a sequel? And that is actually a very fair review as well. Thank you. Yeah. I don't it, know why you think I just gonna butcher everything, but you know. <laughs> well, well, because I've heard I've heard you like review something, and it's like, oh, he's gonna give that one like a, at maybe maybe a three point five, and he's like, and I give it one point seven five. It's like, what the? Oh man, you're like, 
It's like you got a puppy you got to kill for some reason. And it's like, oh, God, you're petting the puppy. You're petting the puppy. And instead of, you know, putting it down humanely, you decide to get a buzzsaw or like a hacksaw and just start hacking it away. And at the same time, you're still putting, you're putting, no, you're petting the puppy as the blood is squirting everywhere. And uh, yeah, good old Matt's right. trick reviews. There you go. All right, well, then uh, take her away, sir. Let's see what you got. All right, Psycho 2, 1983, four-star movie for me, uh, which uh, would surprise a lot of you based on, you know, how I said that I really liked it. Matt said he he didn't care for it all too much, uh, or as much. And uh, But, you know, it's hard to be put in a position to where a studio wants to do a sequel to a... One of the most famous American films ever made. Psycho. Anthony Perkins did not want to do this movie until he got permission from Alfred Hitchcock's daughter. To which she replied after Perkins asked her, you know, would, I mean, would, do you, can, do I have your blessing? Would Alfred Hitchcock give me his blessing? And her response was, going off the top of my mind, uh, mind here, but it, pretty much she said, yeah, you know, my dad would have loved it. He would have got a kick out of it. And so that was enough, you know, of an of an incentive for Anthony Perkins to reprise his role as Norman Bates. Um, this movie tried uh, tried so hard to be different from Psycho. You know, they didn't want want this to be a throwaway sequel. They didn't want this to be a rehash of the same stuff. But then again, this is a sequel to one of the greatest American movies ever made. And yet, I thought they handled it pretty nicely they updated the story a little bit it's sexier you actually see the nudity you actually see the knife penetrating the skin and actually cutting open somebody's jugular and watching that person bleed profusely as they slowly die Uh, you actually see all that so it's a mix of suspense a suspenseful thriller well, not maybe not thriller, but a suspenseful movie, and it's definitely more of a 80s horror type of film. Violent. If they went a little bit further, it could have even have been like an exploitation flick, but it wasn't. It was actually a good movie. They tried, and it's obvious that they tried. You got the music, the, a beautiful score provided by uh, Jerry Goldsmith, who used some of the original score from the first movie, but updated it, added more to it, added his own touch to it. And I thought that this movie became its own film. It was a gr- I thought it was a really good sequel. I thought it was a good continuation. There were great moments in it. There were there was great suspense. Yes, the movie was a little bit slow and there was a lot more story to this film, but to me it was still intriguing, it was still interesting and better yet it was entertaining. And I thought the the twist, though it wasn't as profound as the original twist from the first movie, I thought it was pretty good because who would have known? I don't think anybody really could have predicted it because they really didn't set up the movie to have a crazy twist. And I thought that in itself was pretty smart and made the movie that much more enjoyable because you didn't know a twist was necessarily going to happen at the very end. So, four, I mean, it could have been 4.25, but, you know, I'm going to stick with four stars for Psycho 2. Norman Bates has finally got his act together. I'm going. I won't be out late. 
Mother? After being locked up for 22 years, Norman finally has a reason to celebrate. What shall we toast to this time? Happiness. After 22 years of being a bad boy, Norman Bates has finally become the kind of son that makes a mother proud. He runs a respectable business. He's met a nice girl that he likes. If only he could forget about the past. It's never really past. It stays with me all the time. And no matter how hard I try, I, I can't really escape. She's a nice girl. She's a whore. But we, we, we didn't do anything. You let her come between us. God, will you leave me alone, Mother? Will you leave me alone? It's perfectly natural for a son to love his mother. We all go a little mad sometimes. It's homecoming week at the Bates Motel. And homecomings often bring out the worst in a family. Norman, can't you do anything right? Anthony Perkins, Psycho 3. The terror is now complete. Well, here we go. We're now down to Psycho 3. And this is the 1986 trilogy ender more or less now again they do come back with a made for tv psycho 4 which is again supposed to be as much of a prequel as anything else but um like i said this is the actual story in and of itself and kind of closes out the tale um i liked i will say there is this movie and tim and i were talking about it uh is horribly horribly dated but even if you consider that I watched this movie back in like 1991, so it wasn't dated when I first watched this movie, it's just not good. I'm sorry, it it's piss poorly acted. Um, barely, I would say, barely reaches levels of competent in terms of direction, and Anthony Perkins directed this one. Um, Roger Ebert actually enjoyed this movie. He gave it three out of four stars because he also liked the way that Anthony Perkins told the story itself. And that is the one thing I will give this movie. I agree with Roger Ebert on that front. I like that he told the end of the story and gave it a definitive close, which really makes me wonder why they ever bothered with the made-for-TV movie, but whatever. But other than that, other than being able to watch this movie and say, okay, well, that's the close of the story. You don't have to watch anymore. There's really nothing else to say that helps make this movie worth watching at all. Um, I don't quite hate this movie, but I definitely more than didn't like it. So I'm going to go with a star and a half, and it gets that full star and a half for being able to finally close the story. Yeah. Star and a half. Yeah, I don't really know what happened with Anthony Perkins's portrayal of Norman Bates with this movie. Norman Bates in Psycho One, you know, he got a 
good idea that this, you know, this guy was a Looney Tune, and you can just see, you know, his mannerisms and him, you know, cracking under pressure, and you know that was just great acting on his part. Psycho Two, it was a uh, he. He was more. It was more of like I don't want maybe like a dramatic role. I mean, you definitely felt more sorry for him than anything else. And that's how the character should have been portrayed in Psycho 2, therefore making it passable, I guess, for me. But it was at the very end of Psycho 2, when Norman Bates becomes a psycho, like a full-fledged psycho again. And therefore in Psycho 3, full-fledged psycho, that's how he was supposed to be. However, in, in the third movie, he didn't play it as nuanced as he did in the first Psycho, to this one, he it just seemed like he was on a lot of cocaine throughout the entire movie. It, it's like, uh, cut, I got to do a little bit of PCP and do a rail, a nice long rail, and let's get back to shooting again, because a lot of the his dialogue sounded like it was overdubbed, you know, like he went back in the studio and re-recorded it, because it wasn't nuanced. It was more like t- talking like this, and... I don't know, you know, just quicker paced. There really wasn't more to it. And that's what really got me. That's what ruined this movie for me. And there's really not much more I can say about it negatively because that was the bulk of the movie. And unfortunately, that carried on to uh, the story, the pacing of the movie, and just the overall feel of it. It just, it, it taints it. But there are definitely some redeeming qualities to this film. He directed it. I thought he did a really good job uh, with directing. The camera movement was great. Sleeker. It was polished. Uh, I thought Anthony Perkins, as a director, had a good head on his shoulders. He knew what he wanted to do. You know, he definitely tipped his hat to Alfred Hitchcock, but he also made something on his own. He updated it even more so. You could even tell by the super cheesy 80s music and the costumes and the props it was it was ridiculous so whereas psycho 2 they treated it more uh, as a movie you know a really good movie this one definitely had the feel of we're going to try to appeal to appeal to hip kids you know we want to be hip and cool with the with the children folk in them high schools you know that's obviously what they were trying to go for and it's obvious that was a little redundant but it was obvious it was obviously obvious that they were trying to be hip uh, again, interestingly shot, it was an entertaining story for what it was, whatever Norman Bates left untainted. Uh, so I give this one two and a half, right down the middle for me. So that's not, you know, the end of the world, I suppose. Yeah, it's not like the Poltergeist trilogy. <laughs> However, the investigator chick from Psycho 3 reminded me of Tangina. I mean, because she was kind of short. She had the big glasses on. She had the trench coat. The demons. Yeah. Uh, This house is clear. We're going to get you, Norman Bates. We're going (laughs) to get you. Indeed. All right. So next week's movies are John Wick. And then to close out the Halloween horror flicks, we're going to be covering Demonic Possessions with Ouija Annabelle and Prince of Darkness. So, I believe that that concludes yet another episode of the SLS cast and brings us to the spiel, does it not, sir? 
Spiel on. All right. Well, the music you've been listening to, with the exception of the horror movie parts, uh, have been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at uh, ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. The horror music that you've been listening to, I assume, is coming to us from Incompetech.com. Yes, sir? Yes, that's right. Incompetech.com, courtesy of Kevin McLeod. Outstanding. Yes, and we will have the track names posted on the website very cool and then of course we are still the sls cast and you can check us out at slscast.com you can send us an email to the show at slscast.com you can follow us on twitter at the sls cast you can follow me matt on twitter at nitwit12345 you can even follow the yellow brick road and find the technological marvels that is twitter and search to find tim and, of course, you can also go to Facebook and search us there and subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So, until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Deborah Winger, I get to say this. Never say never. But the thought of electively cutting oneself is beyond my grasp, and I also object to it politically. Denying the lines on our faces makes a comment about age and wisdom I don't care to make. Take care, guys. Talk to you next week. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>